0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Tonight we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1 through 13. And uh, Paul, in this section, turns back to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, to give the Corinthian believers an example, a few examples, of the kind of uh, warnings that God gave the Israelites. As they were wandering in the wilderness. So, we want to look at a few different exhortations that Paul gives the Corinthians based on the Old Testament text. And, you know, an exhortation just simply refers to uh, someone urging or warning uh, another individual about something. Really, you could look at this passage and turn to verse 11 and see that as really the thesis statement of the entire passage where Paul says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So God set out to record these Old Testament stories and he did this not only to document history but also to give us a warning, to show us Uh, the mistakes that the Israelites made and so that we can learn from them. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. Paul says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Okay, so this is definitely one of the more difficult passages in the book of Corinthians. And what Paul's referring to is the Exodus account where the Israelites escaped their enslavement in Egypt. If you study the Old Testament, the Israelites were in Egypt for about 400 years and were working as slaves for the Egyptians. And finally, God extracted the Israelites from Egypt. And he did this by sending his prophet Moses. And Moses, each time he went into Pharaoh's court, demanded that Pharaoh give up the Hebrew people. And each time Pharaoh refused, God sent a plague to bring gradual pressure onto Pharaoh until finally the 10th plague came and God decided to take the firstborn children of Egypt. And at that point, Pharaoh decided to let the Hebrews go. Now, this segment of Scripture is uh, captured mostly in the book of Exodus and, and somewhat in the book of Numbers. We look at Exodus 13, that as they were escaping, God led the Israelites in a roundabout way through the wilderness toward the Red Sea. The Israelites left Egypt like an army ready for battle. So they were arrayed in in army formation, which was sort of weird because the Israelites had been slaves for 400 years. They had no battle experience. They didn't know how to wield a sword. And yet God arrayed them in these ranks. And it says that God brought them toward the Red Sea. Now, as the story goes, they actually cross the Red Sea because God parts the waters. I remember taking this ancient Near Eastern history class at OSU, and uh, the professor suggested that the better translation for this is actually the Reed Sea, which during Moses' time was about six inches of water. And so uh, that seems to directly contradict the Exodus account, where it says that the soldiers actually drowned in the Red Sea And I think that when you look at the text, there's pretty good evidence to suggest that the Red Sea is the preferred reading. Plus, you know, to think that hundreds of charioteers drowned in six inches of water is like believing that, you know, hundreds of people drowned at Zumbezi Bay in, you know, the tiny tides pool or something like that. It's not very likely. Well, we read in Exodus 14, verse 5, when the word reached the king of Egypt that the Israelites had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds. What have we done letting all these Israelite slaves get away, they asked. So when Pharaoh found out that the Israelites were pinned between two mountains and the Red Sea, which they were unable to cross because it was incredibly deep, Pharaoh, he decided, you know what? Why did we let them go? We should go and pursue them and capture them and enslave them again. In Exodus 14, verse 8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, so he chased after the people of Israel who left with their fists raised in in defiance, no doubt, with one finger raised uh, in defiance as well. And so um, God actually hardened their hearts, hardened Pharaoh's heart, and this wasn't God compelling Pharaoh to pursue the Israelites. He wasn't you know, causing Pharaoh to commit evil. Instead, he was strengthening Pharaoh's resolve to carry out an act that he knew was wrong and would have devastating consequences upon Egypt. Well, in verse 13 and 14, Moses told the people, don't be afraid. Stand still and watch the Lord rescue you today. The Egyptians you see today will never be seen again. The Lord himself will fight for you. Just stay calm. And so Moses, being a great leader, decides that he's going to bolster his people, his troops, and he says, don't be afraid. This refrain comes up over and over again, not only in the Old Testament, but also throughout the entire Bible, because in many ways, fear is the enemy of faith that often God calls on us to do things that are uncomfortable, or he leads us into a way of life, or leads us in a direction that is very confusing. And so Moses encourages them and says, don't be afraid. He says, stand still. You, know, you can imagine as the Israelites are standing there, trapped between two mountainsides, the Red Sea to their back, they see, you know, hundreds of charioteers rumbling and, you know, clouds of dust kicked up by these, these people, this army that's chasing them in hot pursuit. And uh, they must have been really scared. And Moses tells them, the Lord himself will fight for you, just stay calm. So they're not even supposed to put out a battle cry. They're just supposed to stay calm and be quiet and trust that God himself will rescue them. And this really fits the pattern with the way that God rescues us. That He doesn't want us to look to our own capabilities or that He wants us to try to find the kind of resources that we need to get out of the problems that we have, but instead, God calls on us to trust in Him to deliver us. And he did the same for the Israelites. Well, in verse 15 and 16 and 20, the Lord said to Moses, tell the people to get moving. Pick up your staff and raise your hand over the sea. Divide the water so that the Israelites can walk through the middle of the sea on the dry ground. The cloud settled between the Egyptians and the Israelite camps. As darkness fell, the cloud turned to fire, lighting up the night, but the Egyptians and the Israelites did not approach each other all night. So as the Egyptians approached this pillar of cloud, this dense cloud, separated the Egyptians from the Israelites. And when evening came, this turned into a pillar of fire that separated them. And you can imagine, you know, the Egyptians were just sort of foaming at the mouth, waiting for an opportunity to get at the Israelites. They were probably taunting them, like, yeah, just yeah, keep hiding behind that fire. Just wait until that lifts. See what happens then. Then in 20 and 21, the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. The wind blew all night, turning the seabed into dry land. So the people of Israel walked through the middle of the sea onto dry ground with walls of water on each side, you know. So God managed to part this incredible sea and create a corridor for the Israelites to pass through. And you can imagine the fear they must have felt as they were crossing the the bottom of this river or this sea with you know 100 foot pools of water on both sides verse 26 and 27 when all the israelites had reached the other side moses raised his hand over the sea and the water rushed back into its usual place the egyptians tried to escape but the lord swept them into the sea so as the egyptians saw the israelites getting away, they actually started to pursue them. And at that moment, Moses um, raised his hands and his tidal wave of water swept them all away. When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. And they put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And so this brings us back to our passage where it says that uh, God baptized the Israelites into Moses. You know, they put their faith not only in the Lord, but also in God's servant, God's representative, Moses. We read in verse 2, Paul says they were all baptized into Moses, which, you know, whenever you think of baptism today, you usually think of water baptism, where, you know, somebody is sprinkling water on this you know, infant baby who's screaming or you know, somebody immersing themselves in water. But the Greek word baptizo actually has a wide range of meaning which can include just simply putting something into something else. And so, um, in a way, Paul looks at this account in Exodus and says that God baptized the Israelites into Moses. And, you know, really, this whole account was a type of what would happen with Christ. In verse 6, Paul says, Now all these things occurred as examples. This Greek word is the word tupos, which is where we get the word type from. And so Moses was really a type of what we would see later on in Christ. That God Himself would place us, His people, into Christ. So much so that He identifies us with Him. You know, the Bible teaches that the moment we receive Christ, God's Spirit enters our life. He takes up residence within us. But, the Bible also says that we are then united, not only with Christ, but also with one another. And so we take on the identity of Christ. And really, Moses then becomes what Christ ultimately was. A mediator, an intercessor for the people. You know, we see this kind of uh, thing in Exodus 32, verse 30 and 32, where Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin. This is after the people fashioned this golden calf, and God was angry at them. He says, but now I'm going to go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed, but now please forgive their sin. If not, then blot me out of your book that you have written. And so Moses stands up for the people and intercedes on their behalf in the same way that Jesus intercedes on our behalf as a result of his death on the cross. We see this explicitly stated in Hebrews as well. Hebrews 7.24, where the author says that Jesus is able to save us completely. Anyone who comes to God through him because he lives always to intercede for them. And so God uh, is sitting in his throne, his heavenly throne, and Jesus intercedes for, for us on our behalf day after day so that we can have a right standing before God. And so this leads us to our first exhortation from Exodus, which is that Paul is calling on us to turn to Jesus as our mediator, in the same way that the Israelites turned to Moses as their mediator. You know, you might be here, and you may have very little familiarity with Christianity. What you need to know is that God doesn't want to punish you He doesn't want to judge you. He wants to show you mercy and compassion. And he did that through Jesus Christ. Secondly, it says that they were under the cloud and in the cloud. Now, this is interesting. If you ever study the Exodus account, as the people were wandering through the wilderness, there was a cloud that would direct the people by day and a fire at night. And so whenever this cloud would start moving, the Israelites would have to pack up their camp and start moving and following this cloud. And this represented God's presence, leading them throughout the wilderness. And so you can imagine, you know, you're sitting there and you unpack your stuff, you start to set up camp, you put down your tarp, you you pitch your tent, You start arranging your furniture. And then the next morning, you start to see the cloud moving again. And you're just like, oh. So you tell your family, you're like, pack it all up. We're moving again. And so that must have been difficult. And yet God was leading his people, teaching them to rely on his guidance. And so this leads us to our second exhortation which is that God wants us to learn how to rely upon the Holy Spirit's guidance. You know, as I mentioned, as the Spirit enters our life, God not only makes His presence known to us through that, but He also gives us guidance. It's amazing, you know, whenever uh, I see somebody come to Christ, a lot of times they don't have very many spiritual thoughts. And yet, once they receive Christ, it's amazing the amount of insight that they have into Scripture and into spiritual things. It's almost like uh, their understanding takes this quantum leap, and it's because of the Holy Spirit's guidance. And I think, you know, this is very difficult for us sometimes because we want to kind of know what the next step is or where God is leading us. And it bothers us that God says, look, I'm going to lead you in this direction. And you're like, okay, where's that? And he's like, don't worry about it. You're like, I want to know. Typically, we want the blueprint before we decide we're going to sign off, right? That's one of the things that prevents us from really following God is we want to know what his will is specifically for our lives before we decide to follow him. You know, we want to know, who am I going to marry? What kind of career will I land? What will my life look like if I devote my entire life to you? And when God comes back with really no answer, except trust me, you know, we find ourselves in this struggle where we're not sure we want to trust God. And really, it boils down to our desire to try to control the situation, we want to know what God's plans for our lives are so that we can compare it with our plans and decide whether or not we actually want to follow that. You know, I think about how every winter it's really difficult for my kids because they can't go outside and, and you know run around wild in the streets. And uh so what we usually do is uh we have like a movie night every every weekend, and um You know, I try to introduce them to quality 90s action films, right? (laughs) And so usually what I do is I give them a basic plot line trying to introduce them and entice them so that they'll be interested in the movie. And so I'll say to them, you know, uh, Die Hard (laughs) is a movie about this anti-hero named John McClane. And he rescues hundreds of people in the Nakatomi Tower while killing hundreds of other people. (laughs) And so, you know, my six year old is always, he's kind of a contrarian, so he squints his eyes with confusion and then starts, you know, hitting me with a hailstorm of questions. Who's John McClain? It's Bruce Willis. Uh, What's Nakatomi Tower? It's in LA. What's an anti hero? I'm like, look, okay? Just, it's hard to explain. But trust me, this is going to be a great movie. You're going to like it, right? And so, in the same way, you know, we, we hit God with all of these questions. You know, what's my life going to look like? What, what, what's going to be the outcome if I decide to trust you in this situation? And a lot of times, we find ourselves reluctantly signing on because we're not sure that we want to give over control to God. God. And so, one of the things that God wants to teach us as we continue to grow spiritually is to lean on His guidance as the Holy Spirit leads us. Verse 3 and 4, They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Okay. So he talks about this spiritual rock that accompanied them, and he equates this to Christ. Now, this refers to an event where the Israelites were out in the wilderness, and, you know, in the ancient Near East, and really today in the Near East, you know, water is a precious commodity. And so in most people's minds, water equals life. Or to put it the opposite way, the lack of water equals death. And so, you know, as the people cried out and said, you know, we're out here thirsting. We're going to die of thirst. Moses went to God and pleaded with him to save the people. And so God directed him to go and strike the rock that was near the camp. And from it, water gushed and, you know, God saved the people. And so, Paul is equating this with Jesus. And this really, I think, fits with some of the statements that Jesus makes about himself. For example, in John 4, verse 10-14, through as he's speaking to this Samaritan woman standing by the well, he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for this drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and this well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And so Jesus says, I am like living water. What I provide will finally quench your thirst. You know, you look out into our world today and people are just uh, constantly looking for some sense of fulfillment. You could tell that, you know, as they bury all of their effort into making as much money as they can into their career that they think is going to make them important, give them the significance that they really want in their lives. Or people, you know, who chase after experiences or pleasure, that next high. You know, you look around and you see people who have this inner thirst that can't be quenched. And Jesus promises that I will slake this inner thirst that you feel. That really, the thing you are looking for that you're missing isn't more possessions. It isn't this title that you're looking for. It's a relationship with me. That's the thing that's going to satisfy you. And so really... This picture of the spiritual rock is one of God providing for His people. And God says that this finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Also, He says that they ate this spiritual food. Now, this refers to as they were walking around in the wilderness, each morning they would see this flaky substance on the ground called manna. And um, they would repurpose this stuff into bread. And um, According to Moses' description, this was white like coriander and it tasted like honey wafers. Now, in the ancient world, they didn't have any way to refine sugar. So, you know, the, the sweetest things that you could get in the ancient world were either honey or dried fruit. And so this stuff was like, tasted awesome, right? And so when they first saw this stuff on the ground and gathered some of it, they brought it to Moses and they were like, what is this stuff? And the word manna actually means, what is it? And so Moses was like, what is it? And they're like, we asked you first, what is it? And he's like, what is it? You know, you can imagine this sort of thing going on for several hours. But the interesting thing about this manna was that God not only provided each day for them, but as the people collected enough of this manna, they needed to consume it that day. Because by morning, it would spoil. And so this represented how God wanted to provide for His people. That it would be a day-by-day dependence upon Him to provide. You know, God taught the Israelites humility and dependence by supplying them with spiritual food and water in the desert. This really becomes the essence of following God. In the same way that we rely on God initially, to give us eternal life, to save us. He also wants us day by day to turn to Him to look to provide for our needs. And this really becomes difficult because we're not sure sometimes whether God is going to come through for us. Either we believe that He's not powerful enough to deliver or we have suspicions about whether or not He's good enough and if He's actually going to give us good things. And so it's a constant struggle. It's, it's an, it's an arm-wrestling match between us and God where God says, I want to take care of you. And we tell, we tell him, I want to take care of myself. But really, this picture goes beyond that. We see in Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, that God comments on this event and says, Yes, God humbled you by letting you go hungry and then feeding you with this manna. A food previously unknown to you and your ancestors. He did it to teach you that people do not live by bread alone. Rather, we live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so this was a picture of how God wants us to rely on him. Not only to provide for our needs, but also to look to his written word as a basis for spiritual growth and development. And so this gives us our third exhortation from Exodus that God wants us to turn to his written word daily for spiritual nourishment. That as we study the Bible, God actually speaks directly to us. I don't know if you've ever had that experience where you're sitting there and you're reading the Bible and um, it's almost like God is communicating directly to you. I actually had this experience earlier today as I was sitting there reading the Bible. And it doesn't happen every single time. But sometimes a passage will hit me and it's very clear that God is speaking to me. And so God wants us to turn to his written word to gain that, that daily nourishment. You know, as we grow in our relationship with God, learn more about him, He actually transforms our character so that over the course of weeks, months, years, decades of following Him, learning more and more about His character and God actually conforming our thoughts to His thoughts completely changes us. Not only our thinking, but also our behavior. Now think about the opposite of that. You know, imagine if your friend came up to you and and she was just like, man... I've been having all these problems. I don't know what's going on. I got this headache that's bothering me. I feel lightheaded. Uh, I've got this stomach problem. You know, I'm I'm having trouble, uh, you know, going number two. And you're like, okay. (laughs) Um, And they're like, you know, I just, I feel like just fatigued all the time, and I don't know why. And so you're like, well, maybe you have a fever. Have you uh, taken your temperature? She's like, yeah, I took my temperature, you know, I'm f- I, it's normal. And you're like, well, maybe it's something you ate. Maybe you ate something bad at that Mexican restaurant we ate at last night. And she's like, that's impossible, because I haven't eaten in four days. And you're like, dude, well, there's your problem right there, right? You know, you need to eat something. And so, you know, sometimes you'll encounter people who are like, man, my spiritual life is just on the rocks, I just feel like, you know, doubts are constantly flooding my mind about God. I, I feel like I'm going through this spiritual depression, and I just can't shake it. And you're like, well, you know, um, when's the last time you spent some, some time studying the Word of God? And you're like, well, you know, it's been a few weeks. And you're like, well, I'm not saying that that's going to cure your problem, but why don't you, why don't you start doing that? and see what happens. And in most cases, it changes. You know, people see a huge change in their, in their mindset when they start connecting with God. All right, verse 5 and 6. Nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, and their bodies were scattered over the desert. Now, these things occurred as an example to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. So <clears throat> it's interesting when you look at the account there in, in Deuteronomy, which was sort of a retelling of the entire Exodus account. Moses actually tells us in in chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, that uh, these words spoken to all of Israel in the desert east of the Jordan. He He says that it takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea. Horeb was where God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, right? Somewhere located in the Sinai Peninsula. And he says it only takes 11 days to get to the southern tip of Israel, which is where Kadesh Barnea was uh, um, located. And yet, it says, in the 40th year, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This is right before the Israelites actually entered the promised land. And so they had been wandering around for 40 years, and yet, It only took 11 days to get to the promised land. And it was because, you know, the Israelites throughout their time wandering in the wilderness were rebelling against God. They were grumbling against God. And so as a result, God said, "Um, the majority of you are not going to enter the promised land, including Moses, who disqualified himself right at the very end. And so the second generation was the one that entered with Caleb and Joshua, the only two from the original generation. Well, you know, when you look at this, you wonder, so what's the warning for us? So if we don't follow God or if we don't listen to his warnings, he's going to strike us down. Well, you know, God says that he's not going to withdraw his salvation from us if we commit you know, moral wrongdoing. But we can disqualify ourselves where we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we might suffer loss, the rewards that God wants to give us, or that we might, might find ourselves enslaved to a lifestyle that's damaging not only to ourselves but also to the people around us. And so there's a lot at stake here. He says in verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. And so, um, this takes us to exhortation number 4, which is that Paul is calling us to turn away from counterfeit gods. You know, the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 8 were actually turning back to their old way of life and worshiping these false gods. And so this would have had particular relevance to them. So, you know, when you look at our lives today, I don't think any very many of us are tempted to go and worship an idol that we carved with our own hands, right? You know, we don't go home and um, worship the little shrine that we've set up to this false god that we created from wood. Um, and yet, when you look at idolatry, Really, idolatry is placing anything or anyone above God or putting one of those things in the place where God rightfully deserves to be enthroned in our lives. Look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, where Paul says, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. So he equates this this Never-ending thirst for more money and more possessions as a form of idolatry. And I would say that that fits perfectly with American culture today. Where, you know, one of the main struggles that most Americans have is placing money, wealth, possessions in the place of God. Looking to those things as the things that will save us instead of God that will give us the kind of assurance and security that we long for, that only God himself can provide. And really, you could replace anything. Um, You could really create anything into a counterfeit God. You know, for some of us, it's a relationship that we're, we're entangled in, where we're looking to this person, this individual, to meet all of our needs. Or maybe it's a career aspiration, We hope that that's going to finally give us the sense of significance we feel like we've been missing all of our lives. Maybe it's, you know, our our physical appearance, our bodies. You know, really, uh, anything that we place where God belongs in our lives is a form of idolatry. Verse 8, he says, We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one one day, 23,000 of them died. Here he's referring to this event in Numbers 25, verse 1 and 2. Whereas the Israelites were wandering in the desert, uh, they were staying in this city called Shittim. And it says that the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to the sacrifices to their gods. The people ate and bowed down before these gods. And apparently, these Moabite women were not only seducing the men of Israel, but also enticing them to start to worship these false gods. And so, this again would have had a particular relevance to the Corinthians um, because many of them were entangled in a sexually immoral way of life. And so this brings us to exhortation number five, which is that we should flee sexual immorality. As we mentioned, uh, immorality is not only dump- damaging to us and the person— in which we're engaged with uh, sexually, but also that it defiles the entire community. That, you know, as people are, you know, being promiscuous, hopping from one partner to another, it really creates this sense of phoniness in our community where, you know, people are acting like they're real spiritual, but everybody knows what's really going on behind the scenes. That there's hypocrisy spreading throughout. Verse 9 and 10, he says, We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes, and do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. So, this takes us to our sixth exhortation, which is that Paul says that we should resist grumbling like the Israelites. You know, this manna that I referred to earlier, this stuff, I guess so long as the Israelites were eating it, never experienced any ailments or any disease. And, you know, it tasted great, too. And yet, throughout the Exodus account, as they're wandering in the wilderness, you know, at points, the Israelites would actually complain. They said, you know, why did you bring us out here, God? We're eating this this crappy bread. Back in Egypt, we were eating meat great produce so you're going to take us out of egypt just to let us die and eat this crappy food and you know you can imagine how god must have felt as he was standing there watching the people grumbling he had he had liberated them from slavery from 400 years of oppression he had provided for their needs he had given them guidance And all they could do was complain and grumble about their lives. And, you know, really, from God's standpoint, you know, when we sit around and grumble about our lives, that's a real problem to Him. You know, some of us feel like, well, that's just, you know, normal. When you look around our culture today, people are constantly complaining about their lives, how people have screwed them over how they don't have as much as they wish they could. And, you know, we're just sitting around constantly wanting more things, hoping that when we get more, that we're going to feel better about our lives. And yet, when we look at ourselves, we are really the most privileged people on earth. Okay, maybe relatively, when you look around the room, you know, you're like, well, this person is certainly more privileged than me. And yet, when you look at it from a bigger scale comparing your life to the rest of the world, who most people earn a dollar 25 a day? I would say that our lives are pretty good by comparison. That we have, you know, public utilities, that we have electricity. You know, that the biggest problem that we run into is that our, you know, our cable is flickering as we're watching the Cavs game. I mean, what? So that's that's the worst that, you know, we have to experience? You know, when it comes to grumbling, it really rewrites the past and compares it to the present. You know, we, we look back and reminisce on the past. And we use creative imagination to recall what happened in the past. How glorious, how awesome it was, and how terrible things are now. Like, man, if I could only go back to those days when everything was awesome. And yet, when we look at it objectively, there were a lot of problems back then too. We felt the same sort of discontent that we feel now. What about this? It stems from an attitude of entitlement and ingratitude. You know, when we sit around and we grumble, what are we saying? We're saying, God... What you have given me isn't good enough. And yet, from God's standpoint, He's like, if I gave you what you deserved, you would get judgment. Nothing less than that. And yet, I've shown you incredible mercy and kindness. And all you can do is complain. You know, sometimes I sit around and I just, uh, you know, whine and complain about my life. And, um, I catch myself sometime and I'm just like, why am I doing this? Why am I complaining about my life when, objectively speaking, my life is great? God has given me so much. And finally, grumbling is contagious. You know, when, you, when you're around people who just constantly complain, what does it do? It, 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 uh creates in you this sense of discontent. You find yourself grumbling as well, complaining about how your life could be better. Well, he says in verse 12, so if you think that you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. Some of you might be sitting here and thinking, man, I'm really glad my roommate's here to hear all this because he's got a real problem in one of these areas. You know, if you look at this and you think to yourself, I don't struggle with any of those things, then either one of two things are happening. One, you are compromised in some way or you've got a huge blind spot in your life. Because, you know, when I look at people who come to me and say, you know, I've been really wrestling and struggling with temptation." feeling a lack of gratitude in my life i feel like my you know the wheels are coming off of my walk because i have so many problems i look at that as actually a sign of spiritual vitality because if you're struggling if you're wrestling what does that mean it means you're engaged that you're actively trying to work against your tendencies but if you don't feel any of that if you don't feel any struggle then it's likely that you're falling into spiritual complacency. And that's what Paul is exhorting us with here. That he's saying, you know, what happens is that God brings us to a place where we feel like we can't handle this on our own. And that we need God. And that's exactly when God comes in and provides for us and enables us to experience real change. Now, others of us might be thinking to ourselves, well, you know, I look at my life and I have all of these disadvantages, you know. I've experienced abuse growing up. I have this terrible family environment that I have to live through. I've got this, you know, mental problem, uh, mental illness that I struggle with on a daily basis. I just can't handle this. I can't follow God. And yet, Paul says in verse 13, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. So God promises that he's going to provide for you, that he'll bolster you during those times of weakness. Even though you may have a lot of baggage, even though you may have um, a lot of things stacked up against you, Succeeding spiritually. God says that he will enable you. That you're not going to face a temptation that's beyond what you can bear. But that he will provide a way out. All right. Let's uh, just end with a little bit of prayer and then we can hang out. Thanks that you speak a kind word of correction to us. Um, I know on many occasions you've uh, either sent people into my life to speak truth to me or have uh, confronted me through your written word with problems that I have. And um, it's difficult to face those sometimes. And yet, um, when I've learned to trust you and to uh, take steps of faith, um, I've come to a place in my life where I realize that you're doing this for my good. And uh, we thank you that you are a God who... um, Wants to correct us in love. And um, we thank you for this, the story of the Israelites. Uh, thank you for recording their history. And we pray that we can glean some uh, insights from their, their uh, experience in the wilderness and learn from their mistakes. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.